The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Welcome to the Formed Book Club, brought to you by Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute. On the program today, Ignatius Press founder and editor, Jesuit father, Joseph Fessio, Ignatius Press editor, Vivian Dudro, and best-selling author and editor, Joseph Pierce. Join the program as they discuss Cardinal Robert Seurat's book, The Day is Now Far Spent. This is part three of the discussion. We just came back from a, a tour to force tour of the Bay Area, speaking on various topics. Uh, and we are going to return to this book, The Day is Now Far Spent, by Cardinal Robert Seurat. And I propose this for your consideration, uh, Joseph and Vivian. We spend just 30 minutes. This book is so rich and so full of material. We, we, I don't think it's right for the book to go beyond that. There's just too much in there. Uh, yeah, and I also propose that we don't be in any particular hurry to finish it either. And, you know, in other words, we can spend uh, extra book club sessions if you feel it, we need it just to make sure we do justice to this wonderful I think, book. I think so. And we'll give people an approximate you know, idea of what they should read for the next session. Exactly. But uh, we will cover what we need to cover. And this particular section we're going to be covering now has includes the liturgy. Of course, Cardinal Seurat is the prefect of the Congregation for Worship and Discipline of the Sacraments in Rome. So he is the number one liturgical uh, person helping the Pope on this. Oh, gracias. And, yeah, <laughs> Marie, uh, so, any further, any preparatory remarks, Vivian or Joseph? Uh, no, I mean, we got to page 99 last time, so I suppose our usual modus operandi is whoever's got the next page after that. So, mine is right. 109, so I don't know who, if anyone has anything before that. I'm, uh, 124 is my next. Vivian? I, I simply wanted to add, since we're going to be talking about the liturgy, the changes in the liturgy are related to the changes brought by the Second Vatican Council. And I wanted to just point out that um, he's quoting Cardinal Ratzinger on the bottom of page 95, where he says, to defend the true tradition of the church today means to defend the council, meaning the Second Vatican Council. And I thought that was a very fascinating remark well and in on december 22nd of 2005 the year he was elected pope he gave that traditional christmas talk to the cardinals where he spoke about a false understanding of the council which was a hermeneutics or an interpretation of rupture as everything before vatican ii had to be revised you know uh, corrected and everything after vatican ii was therefore something which was Holy Spirit calling us to, he said, no, we must always have a hermeneutic of continuity, of renewal within continuity. And that's been kind of his uh, hallmark as a Pope, and even before he was Pope. And Carlos Schrock clearly takes that same view. We must accept the Council as an act 
It was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but we must interpret it in relationship to the 2,000-year history of the church. You can't interpret it as a complete break. Right. That's, that's very important. Yes, so his quote, there is instead a continuity, like you're saying, that allows neither a return to the past nor a flight forward, neither anachronistic longings nor unjustified impatience. We must remain faithful to the today of the church, not the yesterday or tomorrow. And this today is the documents of Vatican II without reservations that amputate them and without arbitrariness that distorts them. And that was written, by the way, in 1986 in the famous Rasking Report. Which Ignatius Press published. We did. In Italian, it was called Reporto sulla Fede, Report on the Faith. We decided to call it the Rasking Report because it was so, you know, it was such a key person in this thing. And that was a very important publication that was done in both Italian and many of the languages. But it's still worth reading. And yeah, the Rasking Report was wonderful. I want to make just one comment, if I can, though. Uh, I mean, you know, that when we talk you about... You can make two if you want. <laughs> when we take we talk about the uh the, the past the present and the future we always have to see in the light of the church as the mystical body of jesus christ that for jesus christ there is no past present past and future there's only present in other words that we can only be the same church so if there's any uh you know, hermeneutic of rupture which suggests that the church is teaching in the present something which it uh, which it never taught in the past and that contradicts what it taught in the past then that clearly cannot be an authentic teaching of the church because the church is in, in the omnipresence of Christ. Yes, and on page 100, the very top, Cardinal Seurat says, the authentic magisterium can never break with tradition and the word of God. Amen. The authentic magisterium can never yep. break. And we just celebrated uh, the Feast of All Saints. And one of the aspects of that feast is to see the real diversity that can take place in the church. Truly, deeply Catholic men and women of every century, of every culture, and they're so different. Adulabach once quoted me something which I think was a kind of a proverb, which he got somewhere else, but that uh, no one is more like Christ than the saints. But no one, no people are more unlike each other than the saints. Mm -hmm. I mean, you compare St. Teresa of Lisieux with a St. Jerome. I mean, you can't, yes. you can't get it. Or, or, or St. Teresa of Avila. I mean, St. Teresa of Lisieux and St. Teresa of Avila. I mean, you can't, it's, you know, as we would say in England, it's uh, chalk and cheese. You say, what do you say over here that's similar to that? But, yeah, they're not, they're not the same by any means. It's apart from the fact they're both women and they're both saints and they're both Carmelites. <laughs> well, got something and, that, and, and that's why there will always be novelty in the church. The novelty of new saints. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, if I if I could say, Father, because I know we, we we seem to be champing at the bit to get to the lit liturgy. They had one or two things before we get mm -hmm. to that section. And mm -hmm. the first one I have on page one hundred nine actually connects beautifully with what you've just said about the saints. Mm -hmm. And I'm at what we've just been saying about the Ratzinger report. Because actually, on page one hundred nine, I want to quote from the Ratzinger report, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger on the saints, which I think is very pertinent to. Through mm -hmm. this whole discussion. So, if I can just read what Cardinal Ratzinger says there. All right. Hence, true reform does not mean to take great pains to erect new facades, contrary to what certain ecclesiologies think. 
Real reform is to strive to let what is ours disappear as much as possible so that what belongs to Christ may become more visible. It is a truth well known to the saints. Saints, in fact, reformed the church in depth, not by working up plans for new structures, but by reforming themselves. What the church needs in order to respond to the needs of man in every age is holiness, not management. <laughs> now, like, you know, certain things going on with the ch within the church, which I'm not even going to mention, uh, those words are as, as, as apposite as ever. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I want to make a comment, a gloss, so to speak, on this part where he says, real reform is to strive to let what is ours disappear as much as possible mm -hmm. so that what belongs to Christ may become more visible. I often, when I'm in our Lord's Chapel at our retreat house, where they, I vest right in the same part of the chapel where the people are ready for Mass, and these young people there, I always explain the vestments, that when the priest puts on vestments, there's first the amos, which covers the head, which is a, in a prayer for uh, protection from distractions and evil spirits. Then comes the alb, where the priest covers himself in a white garment, the baptismal garment. Sacramentally, the person of the priest disappears into the sacramental Christ. He puts on baptism. Then comes the cincture, which is like confirmation, strengthening, girding one's loins. And by the way, as I tell them, there's a beautiful prayer that prays, that prays for chastity and continence when you put that cincture on. And a lot of new albs don't have a cincture. Mm. They've got this little cloth thing with Velcro. And I think that's part of the problem with the, 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 the crisis in the priesthoods. They stop praying that prayer. Then, then, yeah. then comes the stole, which is a sign of ordination to the clerical state. And finally, the chasuble, the little house, Cosna means house. That's a little house, which is putting on Christ thy priest. And so what's happened is the person, Joseph Fessio, has disappeared under the sacramental Christ. Mm. And then when you go to the altar for the sacrifice, you don't face the people to show them who you are in your face. No, you face the Lord. We all face the Lord together. We'll get to that in a few pages mm -hmm. beyond here. But no, that to me, the vestment, vesting of the priest is the perfect symbolic, you know, a visible expression of what Rassinger says, so real reform is to strive so that is ours disappear as much as possible so that what belongs to Christ become more visible. That does not mean, however, suppress your characteristic talents and gifts that God has given you, you know. As you just said, all the saints are unique individuals. Yep. And uh, in becoming more and more like Christ, they actually became more and more their true selves. And we see this great variety. But the thing that's got to die is the self-referential ego, right? Yes. The, the, um, the narcissist in all of us. So, uh, but you know, Joseph, you sort of alluded to the um, problems uh, we're facing in the church without, not, without wanting to mention them, perhaps. But Cardinal Seurat sees the good that's being brought out of this evil. In other words, the very thing that's reminding us that holiness is the answer is the lack of holiness, you know, the contrast. And on page 110, he says, um, as long as we, and he's talking about the bishops here, I think most of all, 
As long as we are unaware of the seriousness of our failure, we will not react. Will the vile, filthy deeds of some clergymen that have recently come to light wake us up? Maybe this humiliation, this slap on the face was necessary to make us realize our profound need of reform, in other words, of conversion. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I rejoice that the cockroaches have been exposed from under the rock. I have no problem with all that. Uh, I, I, I was merely trying to avoid a long tangent because I know yes, yes. liturgy, that's all. <laughs> Not because I want to avoid mentioning it, but I just want, I thought, I thought we want to move forward. If I could just say one other thing, because um, I know we do want to get to liturgy, but just to set the scenes of liturgy, uh, without reading it, because again, because of time, but towards the bottom of page 116, and then the top section before the first question on page 117, uh, we see how Cardinal Sarah uses um, uh, Michelangelo's Pieta in St. Peter's in Rome uh, as a means of showing the the beauty of the gospel uh, and um, and the beauty of of God and the importance of beauty as manifesting those things. Uh, and I think if, as a way of, if you like, setting the scene for discussion of the liturgy, I think, you know, looking at the way that uh, that work of art by Michelangelo, the Pieta, um, shows us how beauty can lift us up, lift our minds and hearts up in prayer, um, is, is, is important when we talk about the liturgy, because I really think the ugliness we see in many liturgies today is, is sacrilegious, if not blasphemous. Because if the liturgy, I'm talking about particularly the mass, you know, is, 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 is the highest form of worship, then the way that it's actually celebrated so often in such an ugly pedestrian fashion, pedestrian at best fashion, is something which is sacrilegious and needs to be addressed. Well, Vivian, tell us what happened on Saturday to the Feast of All Souls here in San Francisco. Oh, so I attended a requiem mass at the cathedral. Uh, here in San Francisco, which is a modern, very modern building, and many people find very ugly. Uh, but for the first time ever, the Archbishop prayed ad orientum, facing the altar instead of facing the people. He sat upon the altar, these beautiful, huge brass candlesticks and a beautiful brass crucifix, because hanging in the cathedral right now is simply a brass cross with no corpus but this gorgeous brass crucifix on the altar and the archbishop explained to the people why he was doing this what does this mean for the church and the people to face god together to face the east where 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 god the light comes and it was very beautiful homily where he explained all of this and then the music was this polyphonic um chant uh, written by a uh, baroque portuguese Composer I'd never heard of before. It was just gorgeous with this acapella 16 voice choir and the incense and everything. And all this in this very modern building that has actually not, not won a lot of affection. Uh, it transformed that building. It transformed that space to have the beautiful music, the incense, and the bishop facing the altar. It really was. That's so encouraging. It shows it can be done. Absolutely. So encouraging to hear. And I do think that thanks to uh, uh, the motor proprio of Benedict XVI, things are definitely moving in the right direction. We go to an ugly church. I mean, an ugly church. Well, building. by the way, <laughs> this was a Novus Ordo Mass. This right. was Novus Ordo. All yeah, yeah. 
done with the Novus Ordo. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, now we 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 go, we go to a to a you know Dustin Paris. The actual church building is ugly, but the liturgy inside is is wonderful. And 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 it descend to the level of pop culture for those of uh of the, the viewers that have heard of Doctor Who. Uh, it's it's a bit sort of metaphysically like the TARDIS. Uh, I mean, Doctor Who, it's it's ugly on the outside, and you go on the inside and get into the liturgy, and it's uh, uh, resplendent with beauty. Well, also, Thomas Jacobo, you can't see because he's behind the camera here, uh, was in the choir at St. Dominic's where they had what Mozart's Requiem, yes, uh, which is very wonderful. So wonderful. that one of the students in my RCIA class, so someone who's not yet Catholic, he went to that mass at St. Dominic's and he said he wept. It was so beautiful. A Chinese man. So it was really an embarrassment of riches in San Francisco on All Souls Day because we had several gorgeous masses all happening at the same time in different churches. And just goes to show you, it's not over. Well, no, it's not over. It's just, uh, it's just a, 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 another death and resurrection of the church. I, I suppose that does set the scene very, very well for the, uh, the pages in this book. That do discuss the liturgy. So I'm going to step aside and see who's next. Well, I mean, I'm I want to go on page 124, but I mean, anything before that? Is that about the liturgy? Um, let's see. No, this is different. Okay, that's fine. Wait, wait, that 124 is good for me. Well, I have a few things I'd like to point out okay. about what he says about the liturgy that I think are important. Well, is, is that is that before that though? Yes, it is. Oh, really? On page well, 111. He talks about what we need more than, this is in the middle of the page, what we need more than words is to re-experience God. This is perhaps the heart of all reform. And so then he goes on to say, there's a place where we can have this experience of God, the liturgy. In other words, that's exactly what the liturgy is supposed to do, is to draw us into the life of God, to participate. Uh, mysteriously in the sacrifice of Christ and his transformative new life. That's exactly what's supposed to be happening. And unfortunately, that word experience, you know, up until somewhat recently, people were defining in a very particular way, like if they were singing or clapping or being extraordinary ministers of the Eucharist or whatever, that was how they were experiencing so-called active participation. Yes. You gotta be a ministry, you gotta be doing something. Yes, but what this cardinal is talking about in Ratzinger too is no to experience the presence of God, not your busyness and activity, God's activity. Right. Experience yeah. that. In so much as in so much as busyness in the liturgy is distraction from it, um now distraction from, from, from the centrality of Christ, it's obviously actually working against what the liturgy is supposed to be doing. That's right. Okay, Father, where did you want to? Well, I, I'm on anything before 124? Not for me. This is not liturgy, but I think the very profound remarks at the bottom of the page, he says, I'm struck when I see the extent to which young people hesitate to marry. This is not from a form of laziness, but a lack of hope mm -hmm. and confidence in their love. They consent to mediocrity in love. They renounce their great desires. I mean, I, you know, I've never been able to understand this from my youth, you know. People would, you know, go out on a date and decide to get married, you know, you know, a couple of months in the future. Now, people go on and on and they date for 
10 years or whatever, and they can't seem to make up their mind. Mm -hmm. But he lays it, he points to the root of it there, a lack of hope and of confidence in their love because so many divorces, so many broken families, mm -hmm. so much uh, difficulty in the world, they, they, they don't have enough hope to take the chance. Mm -hmm. You know? That's yeah. right. And yeah. the chapter where that quote appears, he's talking about acedia or sloth as being sort of a root cause. Uh, and what is acedia? He says, it's a, this is on page 122, it is a form of depression, sensation, a spiritual lethargy. It is a sort of atrophy of interior vitality, a form of discouragement. Discouragement. That's exactly right. People are discouraged to, to, to do bold things for love, whether it's to marry or to give their lives to Christ in religious vocations, although we're seeing, you know, some fine young people stepping forward and doing that. It also attacks our joy. Acedia or sloth attacks our joy. I mean, can you have a wedding without joy? I mean, what, what, you know, these things rise and fall together. Love, hope, encouragement, joy, and then they fall together. Just the other day, driving down 19th Avenue in San Francisco, uh, which is a main uh, artery of commerce and traffic and everything, Somebody put a poster on his garage that said, in big letters, you can't be grateful and depressed at the same time. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So gratitude, joy, these are the antidotes we need to find I, if we're I, going to, to push a back. Little, a little commercial breaker because yes. on page 122, Carl Schreier references a book on Acedia, The Noonday Devil. Which we publish. He's published by Ignatius Press. By Father Jean-Charles No OSB, Benedict and the New Devil, Asadia, the unnamed evil of our times. And so that that's a fabulous book. It and is. I, I mean, I, I must say, I always have this you know, sense of gratitude myself when I see people like Carlos Schrock quoting our authors. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it means that our, our books are like seeds out there and they're, they're germinating and they're bringing great fruit. By the way, he has a whole chat. You, you know, you started this part of the conversation on marriage. And this author who wrote the book, The Noonday Devil, has a whole chapter on marriage. And he even links the sin of sloth with contraception, interestingly enough. Huh. Very interesting discussion worth looking at. Mm -hmm. She's amazing. She remembers everything she's read. Well, not everything. I forget pretty much right after I read it. But it's a gift God has given me as an editor. I read manuscripts. I say, okay, that's good. Let's do it. And I forget what I read. But <laughs> You know, we'll set we'll set a table here for lunch, and we'll talk about some novel. I don't know. You know, Graham Greene, and she read thirty two years ago, and then she'll she'll tell us about the characters and the plot. Well, so Joseph, you do that too. There's different gifts. Yeah. You know. Okay, we're getting closer to one twenty four. Uh, oh, I did I did one twenty four. Okay. You did one twenty four. You did one one twenty four. I want to drink one twenty nine. So anybody got something before that? Uh, you got it. I, I have nothing else to to one forty. So you're one forty. Yeah, that's when we get into the liturgy. Proper. Okay, all right, but that's I, good. I, 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 oh, 
I forgot that he's got the liturgy in several places. You're yeah. right. He, you know, there's, a, there's a long discussion of liturgy, which really begins around 140. I'm mean, obviously it's that's right. That, that's what I have a whole bunch of. I got 140, 142, 143, 148. Exactly. So it looks as it looks to me as if Father, you spend as long as you like now, because it seems to me that we want to start the genuine, the really serious liturgical discussion with the next uh, the next session. So I think you're right. For 140, let's let's wax lyrical on it. Okay. So page 129. Do you have something before that, Vivian? Oh, I've got all kinds of things, but you go. Well, this is the bottom of the page. Just something at the top. Well, I noticed it's very Ignatian through here. Uh, this sacred distance of God. You know, first we're talking about joy, but then the need for reverence. You know, this is very Saint Ignatius spirituality. Maybe you can explain that. Well, maybe I could, or maybe I couldn't. Uh, but. <laughs> At the bottom of the page, he summarizes, he says, we walk past eminently sacred things without even being gripped by the respect and fear that they inspire. I wish to emphasize one unexpected consequence of this phenomenon. But the sense of the sacred is expressed by means of all the thresholds, all the separations that surround and protect the sacred realities. The church, the chancel or choir, the altar, the tabernacle, so you look at the Jewish people, how do they represent the sacred? That which was set apart. Uh, set apart meaning it's not for creatures, it's for God. They set apart space and time. There was a holy city, Jerusalem. In the city, a temple area, 30 football fields, huge area. Inside that, the holy of, you know, the, the temple itself, I mean, the, the building there, the holy of holies, you get further and further and further into exclusion. Only anybody can come into the temple, then only Jews, then only men, then only priests, and then only the high priest once a year. So you express the sacred by surrounding something with a protective barrier. That's just the way you do it. With time, seven days, yes, but there's one day they set apart. You know, you don't do work on that day. Uh, so again, Something sacred is something which we as human incarnate beings have to say. And I do, I do think, Father, on that subject, that one of the things that I find very sad um, is the sort of the um, dissolving of the threshold between the sanctuary and the rest of the church. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, certainly for me, I find it, I, I don't want to be in the sanctuary. I'm not, I'm not a priest. I'm not, I'm not a server. I don't want to be in the sanctuary. And I know on occasions, of course, I give talks in, in churches. And it, and, it, and it's in the sanctuary. And uh, okay, so be it. But I'm I, I'm very uncomfortable. And I and I think that's because that's there's a sacred space there that I don't actually feel. You know, Domine non sundinius. I'm not worthy to be in that space. Um, and I don't want to be in that space because I'm not worthy to be in it. And I think that sort of diluting uh, uh, and dissolving of the threshold between the sanctuary and the rest of the church is 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 a, a, an example of of us losing that sense of the sacred in the liturgy. Well, I'm not worthy either. But the point well, yeah, but you're a priest, by the way. But, but the point is, uh, wait a minute, I did comma uh, or semicolon, but it's not I that is there. It's Christ in me. I, I'm representing Christ. Right. Uh, you are, but you're, 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 in, you're in persona Christi as a priest. Uh, that, that doesn't apply to me. Right. That's right. No, that's I, right. No, He's right. Been... I'm saying the same thing. Right. And that's what consecration means, right? To be set apart exactly. for, for a holy purpose. But yeah. I think it's so interesting is where he says on page 129 that the deepest mystical union presupposes sacred distance. See, this is, there's a, Joseph, you should like this. There's a paradox here. 
that closeness to God requires a distance from God. And I think what happened during the last several decades where we were tearing down barriers and tearing down things that kept people apart and things that kept us far from God. Everyone's getting close. Everyone's getting chummy. And what we didn't, we didn't realize what we were really doing was actually destroying that intimacy with God. Yeah. Could it be more? For the sense of the sacred is expressed by means of all the thresholds, all the separations that surround and protect the sacred realities. The church, which is set apart from other buildings, the chancellor choir, the sanctuary, the altar within the sanctuary, the tabernacle. Today, in many places, everything is accessible to everyone. They have done away with symbolic limits, like the barrier that used to surround the sanctuary of the church, the steps that surround the altar with the result that everything becomes common or profane. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. I mean, this man, yeah, he's deeply, deeply wise. He's also a great gift to us and to the church and to our times. And I thank God he's out of Africa because I think really think that, you know, that we need this leadership now. And we need this leadership maybe from that continent because obviously Europeans have lost their way. Not all yes. Europeans, of course, I speak as one, but but um, but yeah. many, right, many. Right, and then he goes back full circle. He started with this sin of acedia or sloth, which is a depressed, joylessness, discouragement. And what does he say? A profane world. I would even say a profaned world is a joyless world. Yeah. Bring it back all back together. One to the other, right. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is the half hour. I think that uh, we should continue just as we're doing uh, and give this book the attention it deserves. And we'll be back next week with the next few pages. <laughs> well, let, let, let's just say, by the way, just so that we have some guidance for the people viewing here, that I think that the guidance we gave for the last the last uh, class, the last class, sorry, I've been, I've been teaching for too long. <laughs> the last book club session was the read to the end of book, uh, part two. I suspect that's going to be also ambitious for the uh, for the next session. But uh, many people may have done that already, in which case I, sus- I suggest they don't need to read any more. But for those that haven't, let's, uh, you know, if you read to the end of part two, you're going to be more than covered for the next session of the book club. Well, God bless you all. See you next week. Thank you for joining us for the Formed Book Club, brought to you by Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute. For more information on how you can instantly get thousands of movies, faith-filled programs, audio presentations, and ebooks, go to formed.org. To get a copy of the book discussed on this program, Cardinal Seurat's The Day Is Now Far Spent, go to your local Catholic bookstore or online at ignatius.com. <laughs>